have this on right. This may be the toughest thing I do all day. Thank you for that introduction, David, and not for saying some of the things you know that you could have said about me. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Mark. My wife and I were uh, traveling up here. I, we were reminiscing about the years that we spent in this room listening to chapel speakers. And my great fear, as I sat there, I used to go away from chapel and just, we would devour the speaker. We would say, you know, didn't this guy study? What's the problem? Doesn't he have any idea what it is to be a college student? Uh, why doesn't he bring us something that's worth listening to? And my great fear is that you will go away and you will say, what was this guy doing here? But we have great memories here. I can think primarily of two things that happened to me while I was a student on this campus. Number one, God was gracious to me and brought me a life partner. And uh, she's with me, Sherilyn. Uh, we've been married 17 years. We have three children. And she continues to be my greatest source of encouragement as, far as uh, well as my most objective critic. Uh, those of you who end up having good wives, men, as hopefully most of you will have good wives, uh, listen to them. They can many times give insight into your character and into your preaching that no one else will tell you, and she's been faithful to that. The second thing that God brought me, I believe, while I was here was not only my life partner, but my life work. Uh, David mentioned I was a music major. When I was here, I was quite confused. And I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, so I decided to study my hobby which was music. And at that time, the music ministry uh, of the college allowed a number of us to just go out into the churches, and I got exposed to church life and to church work. I'd grown up in a pastor's family, and I'd listened to my dad preach, you know, since I was knee-high to a hymn book. I had heard sermons, and I had seen church music. But when I came here, I was introduced to the power of preaching. When I was a student here, we would get in the car on Sunday morning and we would travel about 20 miles down to a church called Grace Community. At that time, there was about a thousand people in it. And uh, we would go, they had three services. We would go for the 8.30 service, the 9.45 service, and the 11 o'clock service. And we would try and get right down in front. And it was under John's ministry that I was impacted as a young man. And I said, you know, Lord, if there's any way that you can take a music major and make a theologian out of him, please try with me. And I, I don't know if he's completed that task. I know he hasn't, but I do thank him that he, uh, he has given me a desire to bring the truth of God's word to the world. As I was watching your moment for missions, uh, providentially it was all about Kenya this morning, and I was privileged to spend, how long was I there, dear? Six long weeks. We were married and had one child at the time, and I uh, packed my bag and said goodbye to my wife in Tacoma, Washington, and went to Kenya for six weeks. One of the most astounding things that happened to me in Kenya, we were at a service at the First Baptist Church in Nairobi, three, 4,000 people, and they had a commissioning service for two young couples, African nationals, and they were commissioning them as missionaries. Guess where? Inner city Los Angeles. You know, it's an interesting thing. We think, and I thought as a young person, to go there to help them. And I found that my six weeks there, when I got back, 
God had used that in my life. And so I echo what David has been saying about the missions opportunities. You will go there and you will think that you're going there to help them and you will get back and you will realize that God used that experience to hone in you a greater desire to be part of what he's doing in the world. You'll come back a changed person. This morning I want to speak to you about the priority of preaching. And I know that this may be like preaching to the choir, but when I called Dave Maddox up and begged to speak, uh, this was what was hot on my heart. And I want to look at the first chapter of Mark's Gospel. Now, I know many of you were wondering if I would take advantage of the day, because I know most of you know that today is probably at least the third great, third greatest church holiday, right? You knew that. Reformation Day, not Halloween. Okay, Reformation Day. Back in 1517, on October 31st, Martin Luther struck the match and started a fire that forever changed Western civilization. And certainly, we are children of the Reformation. And yesterday, in our churches around the country, men were preaching probably on justification by faith, which is the best-known legacy, the recovery of the gospel in the Reformation. But one other thing that was recovered, during the Middle Ages, you know that the literacy rates were quite low. Only the well-informed and well-educated could read. And even then, there were not great copies of the scriptures available. Martin Luther, when he went into the monastery, he found one copy of the scriptures in Latin chained to a desk. One copy. And he studied it and he studied it and he began to realize that if we could get that copy or that Bible into the hands of the common people, God really might be able to do something. And so he said it made his life work to take the Bible into the, into the language of the German people. And you know what else happened. One of the byproducts of the Reformation was not only a recovery of the gospel and a rediscovery of the Bible, but really a rediscovery of the preaching priority. That is, that it was now clearly seen that what Paul had said in 1 Corinthians and what he had said in 2 Timothy 4 to Timothy, preach the word, was still God's mechanism of moving both his people and bringing the gospel to those who were not yet his people. And I, I'm somewhat of a social scientist. Uh, when Greg Frazier and I were classmates, we graduated together. Um, we were always trying to fix things. I don't know if Greg's still that way. But he tends to look at things, he and I, and we tried to fix things. And as I look at America today, I'm a pastor in a small church. Um, nobody knows who I am or will long remember what I say. But one of the things that ticks me off, there I said it, is that I am a, a young pastor in a small church. And there are a number of organizations who feel it's their responsibility to tell me how to make my church successful. And I get all these brochures across my desk, and they all have to do with management. You know, one of them I just got told me how many square feet I needed per adult Sunday school. I thought, you know, I better mark that down. That's probably the key to church growth. <laughs> Everybody out there, are people wanting me to go to this seminar, listen to this, but very few, if any of them, ever talk about preaching. Now, I get a number of things that will give me 52 surefire outlines right through the mail illustrations that win converts is another one I've seen but the idea of the primacy of preaching and what a preacher is to be 
and what he is to do and how God uses that. I want to talk about that today. I think that preaching is fast being pushed aside in favor of other forms of religious experience. And in some ways, preachers are to blame. Uh, quite frankly, we're boring. I make a promise to you today. I will be done today before you are. Okay. My goal in preaching is to read the room and to be done preaching before you're done listening. Now, I can't see many of you because it's dark, so I may just keep going after you're sleeping, but please indulge me here a little bit. I want to give you an illustration that I think sums up where preaching is at today in many areas of America. I was reading a book and a pastor was giving the way that he put together a sermon. And he said that during the week he would mentally kind of think about the topic that he wanted to talk on. And as he read the newspaper or listened to the news or talked to people or watched television, he carried around a pocket full of three by five cards and he'd pull them out and he would make little notes of little tidbits that he could share. And then on, get this, Sunday morning, he would go to breakfast at a cafe near his church. He would order breakfast, drink a lot of caffeinated coffee, and he would take these 30 or 43 by 5 cards and begin to arrange them into an order for his morning message. And at the end of this description in the book that he was writing, he said, many weeks, this was a three to four hour ordeal in total. In other words, he spent a whole three or four hours preparing his message. Can you imagine? Something's gone. Something's lost. What we need desperately are men who are trained and really lit up by the passion of God's word to be preachers. Now, you may say, Dave, why do you come and deliver this message here? Um, well, it's not because I don't believe that you have heard this before. It's because everybody in this room will either be a preacher or will be benefited to the extent that they choose a godly and gifted man to whom to entrust the care and feeding of their soul. My wife and I just moved about a year and a half ago from Chicago. And we moved here, and when you're in a new area, you know, if you've got three kids like I do, the first three or four months you spend frantically trying to fill in the certain spaces of your life. You've got to find a good doctor. Okay, if you've got children with runny noses and ear infections, You've got to find a good doctor. Then, if you're like me, you've got to find a good mechanic. Okay? Someone who can do what you can't do. And yet, you need to find somebody who's a good accountant. And you want to find a good plumber. And you ought to find a, somebody that knows where a good Chinese restaurant is. And a good doubles partner for tennis. There are certain things that you can't live without. Right? Amen. But I want to add to that list that probably the most essential thing in your life, next to your life partner, is the man of God who is going to be called to shepherd your soul, who is going to be God's person in your life to bring the truth of God's Word and drive it deeply into your heart. We call that guy your preacher. Now, there may be more than one, depending on the church you're in. But I believe that until we as a, as a community of believers replace our current 
picture of preaching with a high honor of what the preacher is called to do and must do. We need to do that so that we can hold his feet to the fire to make him study, to make him pray, to make him sit in his office until he can bring to us a message from God. But if we don't have a high view of the office and of the function of the preacher, we will be all too satisfied with spiritual pablum. Now, why am I so hot and bothered about this? Because I've, I'm in a small church that I look out over my people and I just want to grab them and I want to shake them. And I want to say, learn! And yet I look at their past. And they have not had people who took seriously the preaching office. Well, if we were to look at the Bible and ask ourselves, where is a good text to talk about the priority of preaching? We might think of 1 Corinthians 1. God chose the foolishness of preaching. We might turn to that text in 2 Timothy 4, where Paul exhorted Timothy to preach the word and to exhort in sound doctrine. But I want to today look at Jesus from the first chapter of Mark as a model preacher. Now, those of you who have taken New Testament survey, you immediately, a flag just went off in your mind. You said, now, Dave, you shouldn't go to Mark. Because Mark is the one book that has the least of Jesus' discourses in it. Mark was written for a Roman audience, and so it has most what? Miracles. Thank you. Mark is the gospel of action. And some have said... Mark doesn't know about Jesus as a preacher, and I've chosen Mark for that very reason. Because Mark does go out of his way to show that Jesus primarily was a preacher. Jesus is a preacher. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Then we move down to verse 7. And he was preaching, and he said, After me one is coming who is mightier than I. And we move down to verse 14 and we meet this one. It says, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. John was the preacher. When he was taken out of commission, God raised up another preacher, his son. Someone has said that God only had one son and he made him a preacher. Okay. Now, if you think that I'm here to tell you that the calling to preach the gospel is a higher calling than anything else, you're absolutely right. My dad told me, Dave, if you're called to preach, never step down to be president of the United States. And I believe that. Now, being a good reformed believer, I also believe that the calling to be a good Christian plumber is equally divine. Or a good Christian accountant. But if God has put his heart on you and has gifted you and is training you to preach the gospel, don't be like Jonah. Be obedient to the heavenly vision. Mark's gospel does show Jesus as a preacher. Look at verse 21 of chapter 1. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Look at verse 38. And he said to his disciples, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby in order that I may preach there also. For that is what I came out for. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. And he was teaching them. Many things in parables and saying to them in his teaching, listen, look at chapter six, verse thirty four. 
And he went out shore and he saw a great multitude and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And notice very carefully what Christ's reaction motivated by his compassion when he saw these people in great need. What was his action? He began to teach them. Christ's response primarily to the felt needs of the people around him was instruction. Jesus' ministry was primarily a teaching ministry. He did not come primarily as a model. He did come as a model, but not primarily as a model. He did not come primarily to heal or to do miracles. He came primarily to reveal Almighty God through instruction. And I think that there is a, there's somewhat of a feeling amongst us today by that I say Christianity in America, that we want to just kind of be like Jesus. In fact, there are a lot of people who really aren't evangelical believers who think that Jesus' life is a nice one to model. You know, you want to love like Jesus did, and you want to forgive like Jesus did, and those are all noble things. But Thomas Akempis, in his great classic, The Imitation of Christ, said that the first and highest way to imitate Christ is to respond in obedience to his, what? His instruction. Following Christ means first and foremost hearing what he had to say and doing it. Even in Jesus' day, there were many who lined up to follow him, right? And he said to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you don't do what I say? Well, we want to talk not only about Jesus as the preacher, but the the authority of the preached word. Why is it? That we must, like Jesus, be committed to the preaching of the word. I think there's a great little illustration for us in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 21. By this time, Jesus has been baptized by John. He has called his disciples. And the first real event in his life that Mark wants to include for us is given to us in Mark 1.21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Now, I hope that when you read the Bible, you do so with a tremendous grasp of the obvious. You know, you don't want to necessarily get creative in trying to figure out what it means. What is this saying? There's something that jumps out at us here. Jesus went into a synagogue, and what did he start doing? He started teaching. Nothing more. He just probably opened the scroll, as he had, would do several times in his life, and he just started reading the Scripture in the synagogue way and explaining what it meant. And so what is surprising here is the reaction of this person who had the demon. Now, there's nothing that would lead us to believe other than this person was a regular probably in the synagogue. 
He had sat under many of the scribes who had come and done basically the same thing, perhaps. Jesus isn't coming in looking for him and saying, hey, I see you hiding over there behind the pillar. He just starts teaching. What I want to point out is that the teaching of God's word by God's man has incredible authority. When we speak from God's word, you know, our human audiences may turn us off. How many of you have ever preached? I know I talked to Vince Cuomo on the phone the other day. He said he preached up here. You know, as a preacher, I have preached, and I'm sure you have, and you, you can't think, you think, am I getting through to these guys? Hello, McFly, is anybody out there? Okay, you feel that way, don't you? Sometimes when we speak, our human audiences turn us off. But let me tell you something. When you preach and teach the truth and share the truth of God, it has an effect on the powers of hell. Look what happened here. He just started preaching, and this man that had the demon reacted violently. What have you come to do? Have you come to destroy us? Jesus is just telling the truth, and the demon sees that as a destruction attempt. Notice what it says here about the place of authoritative preaching in the war against Satan. Why did the de demon react this way? Well, if we take a quick detour to John chapter 8, a passage that most of you are familiar with, I'm sure. Jesus is doing battle with the Pharisees. The interesting thing in verse 31, it says, Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him. So here we have a group of people who had lined up behind him and said, you know, we, we kind of like this guy. We believe what he's saying. He's he's saying some good things. And by the time we get down to verse 42, he's saying to these, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come in my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Why did the demon react so strongly to something that we might see as nothing out of the ordinary? Because the main arsenal in Satan's weapon is deceit. It's lie, lie, lie. And when we come out with truth, it unsettles him. We may think that our uh, teaching has no effect, but it does. Our task is to plunder the kingdom of Satan. When the demon asked, have you come out to destroy us? What's the answer? Right on. You got it. Winner. Okay? That's it. That's exactly what we're called to do. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 that we are to gently correct those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance and they come to their senses and what? Escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Our neighbors, people in our community, people who live next door to me are captive by Satan. What is the arsenal we have at our disposal to undo that? It's not management technique. It's not how many square feet you should have in an adult Bible study. Right? What is it? Hello? 
I know, you've already heard this, right? It's truth. The battle has always been about truth. Satan hates it. He strives to pollute it. He strives to dilute it. He arrays all of his powers against it. If you stand for truth, you'll suffer for it. Church history shows us many things, but one of those things is that the price of purity is pain. Jesus said, blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely because of me. If we are going to line up behind our captain, who himself came preaching truth, we can expect that we will, under, we will undergo the barrage that he underwent. Proverbs 23, 23 tells us to buy truth and don't sell it. By the way, that's the book buying verse. Okay? When I was in college, I loved books. I don't know if any of you guys are going into bookstores or whatever, but this is the verse you meditate on before you go into the archive. Buy truth, because it's, it's a divine imperative that you increase your library. Is there spiritual warfare? Yes, there is. Absolutely. But as you're all aware, the only offensive weapon mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6 is what? The Word of God. It's truth. Now, there's also something to be said here about the power of authoritative preaching in the lives of people. A couple things. In verse 22 it says, And they were amazed at his teaching. For his teaching was as one having authority and not as the scribes. These people recognized authority when they saw it. Now, I want to jump from their day to our day. And I believe that our world, our nation, is starving for authoritative proclamation of truth. And you say, wait a minute, Dave, you are way off because our society is hip deep in relativism. Our society says there is no absolute truth. It's whatever you want to be true is true for you. But don't press your truth on me. Well, I, want to, I want to rile against that a little bit. I want to tell you that I believe we have a window of opportunity right now as believers to go to these people whose lives are caught up in a relativism that has brought them despair. There are some historians who are now suggesting that we are in the postmodern age. That the modern age really ended with the fall of the Berlin Wall. The modern age, now I know Greg Frazier is going to correct me on this, because he's my, he's my historian in the closet. Whenever I need something, I, I'm going to call him. But correct me if I'm wrong later, okay, Greg? But the modern age was an age that pinned its hopes on the, the technology of man, on the education of man. They were going to eradicate war and disease and pestilence. And they were going to make the lives of everyone tremendous through man's intuition and knowledge and technology and education. And perhaps the greatest experiment of the humanistic persuasion was the Soviet Union. Everything was controlled. God was taken out of the picture. And they were going to make everything fair and just and they were going to create the utopian society on earth. And that philosophy leached over into all of the societies. That man is the measure. Well, that's now seen as not true. You know, just an illustration. It used to be 20, 30 years ago that physicians were looked upon as 
the modern gods of the age. If you were a physician, boy, everybody trusted you. And if you went to the doctor and the doctor said, hey, this is what's wrong with you and you need to do this, you just went out and did it. That's by the wayside, isn't it? We don't trust medical technology anymore. What's the first thing that happens when you go to the doctor and you get some news you don't like? You get a second opinion, right? And a third opinion. And now we have doctors who are disagreeing over things and we have doctors who don't want to prescribe certain things because now research shows that maybe that's not the best and the whole medical community with all the malpractice and insurance and all those things is in, is in much disarray. That which we banked on as a society to create and it's not yet clear where it's going. And so we as Christians who have a pre-modern message of an absolute almighty God who comes in grace and love to forgive sins and to make life right, we have a window of opportunity now, don't we? And just like Jesus, when he comes into the synagogue, he found a number of people who were thirsty for the authoritative proclamation of truth. I think that people, and here I'm going to let you in on one of my own little idiosyncrasies, okay? A lot of these brochures I get across my desk as, a, you know, a young pastor in a teeny church is that I need to change my focus. I need to focus on what people out there want in the church, and I need to make the church be what those people out there want it to be. You know, I was thinking about that. They call them seekers. You know, I spent some time going through the Bible and, you know, I, I found out there aren't any seekers. Uh, Romans 3 tells me that no one seeks after God. You know who the seeker is? It's God. John 4.24 says he's seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. I have this funny feeling. Uh, it's not a feeling. It's actually a deep conviction. I don't want to gloss over it. But I believe that when someone in Corona, California, under the, the pummeling, really, of the Holy Spirit, begins to see the cracks in their life, begins to see that they have sin, begins to see that they are in danger of ending their life having never come to grips with an almighty God, and they find their way to Corona Evangelical Free Church, you know what? I don't think they want to hear what they already know. I think they want to hear what God has to say. And we have a window of opportunity right now because so many of the remedies that my generation looked to for salvation in a temporal sense have evaporated. Money isn't doing it for us anymore. Medicine isn't doing it. Career isn't doing it. Most of the people in my generation have already ruined at least one, maybe two families. And they are awash in the despair that has been brought about by their placing all of their hopes on a modern philosophy that man is the measure. And see, this is why it's so challenging to be a pastor right now. This is why it's so exciting to be in America, because God could very well bring revival. You know how he's going to do it? Same way he's always done it. By restoring the primacy of the preaching of God's Word by those who are drawn up to do it. Don't clap, please. Oh, I just kidding. 
I want to move on to the priority of the word preached. Look at verse 32. Jesus has gone in and Mark has demonstrated that he has come to preach and his preaching is authoritative and it changes people's minds. And in verse 32, we see the other half of Jesus' ministry. And when evening had come, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and were demon-possessed. And the whole city gathered at the door. I like that. And we're looking for that in Corona. <laughs> we may have to go to two services if the whole city comes, though. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. You know, I just triggered something in my mind. You know that we don't believe in, I don't believe in church growth. We don't find that in the Bible. What we find in the Bible is word growth. In 2 Thessalonians 3.1, Paul prays, pray that the word would run and be what? Be glorified. Paul's joy was in giving the word of God out and letting God multiply the effects of the word. Kind of sounds like Jesus to Peter, I will build my church. We need to deepen our message and let God extend our ministries. That was stuff 101. Back to verse 34. He healed many who were ill. Now, interesting thing happens. What do you think would happen if you were in that town and Jesus came and it was known, and so everybody in the whole town shows up, and everybody who's sick that he has time for, he touches them, and he heals them. And that's, let's say, that's on a, a Wednesday night. What do you think is going to happen on Thursday morning? All those people are going to come back with more people, right? Look what happens. I love this. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, he arose and went out and left and went to a lonely place and were praying there. And Simon and his companions were looking all over for him. And they found him and they said to him, everybody's looking for you. And he said, let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby in order that I may preach there. For that's what I came out for. Do you get the picture here? If Jesus had wanted to, he could have stuck around Capernaum. In fact, he could have traveled around Galilee and pretty much eradicated all known disease. Right? He could have found everybody who had either a life-threatening disease or a stuffy nose and could have just done away with it all if he had wanted to. Right? Would you agree with that? Of course you would. You're here at the Master's College and you believe in the inerrant Word of God. And that's kind of what it says. He could have done that. And there are some in our day who think, you know what? He probably should have. Think of the crowds he could have drawn. Think of the people he could have impacted. He could have put banners up. You know, Jesus, healing ministry. I'm, I'm not usually like this. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think it's instructive what Mark shows us here. Jesus did draw a crowd with healing. And throughout his ministry, he continued to do miracles and he continued to draw a crowd. But when he spoke the truth to them, what happened? He thinned the herd, didn't he? You see, people want miracle. They want what is centered on them. But Jesus says, I came to preach. You know, by the end of his public ministry, he didn't have great crowds lining up 
to cheer him on. Even his own disciples were not following him. You see, the primary way we imitate Christ and we follow Christ is to take in his teaching and drive it deep into our heart through meditation to the place where it becomes the active obedience of our lives. The world wants miracle, but what it needs is the gospel. The world wants physical comfort, but what it needs is spiritual conviction. The world wants us to center our message and our energy on them. But what the world needs is an awakening of the Holy Spirit to the nature and the demands of God. And he has entrusted that to us. And he has entrusted that in some specific way to those who are called to stand before his people and bring the word of God to them. You know, this is the apostolic task. If we were to take time and look at Acts chapter 1, we would see that he sent them out as witnesses. They were to carry his message. I like what the high priest says in Acts 5.28 in questioning Peter and the apostles. He said, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And now you filled all of Jerusalem with your teaching. The apostolic energy was spent doing what? Spreading the good news of God's word. That's it. Throughout the book of Acts, you see the phrase that the word continued to grow and be multiplied. It was word growth that they were after. The proclamation of the truth of God was the priority of the apostolic ministry. And Paul knew that at some point he would die Peter knew he was going to die. All the apostles knew they were going to die. And the question came, how can this church, this fledgling church that is an apostolic church, how does it stay the apostolic church after the apostles are gone? And so you read 1 Peter and you read 2 Peter and you read 1 and 2 Timothy and you find that the apostles made it very clear that that which God would bless in the lives of their successors was his truth that they were to preach it. In 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, preach the word, be ready, both when it seems appropriate and when it doesn't. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will accumulate for themselves teachers who tell them what they want to hear. And they will turn away from the truth and instead they will invest their lives in man-made myths. That happens to come from the Hague passionately interpreted version. Now, which fortunately isn't on sale anywhere. I think that we're losing this. Now, I don't think we're losing it at the Master's College. When the Majesty Group came to our church a week ago yesterday, Sunday night, they sang for us. And I sat in the second row and just cried. And you know, the last time I cried was when Pele said goodbye to soccer. Okay, just so you know. <laughs> But I sat there and cried as I saw young people, I'm getting choked up right now, say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I cried because I said, you know what? God, that, that's got to be it. I'm so thankful for a school that is known for attracting students for the right reason. One thing we tell our people at Corona is what you win them by is what you win them to. If you win somebody by glitz and glitter and all of these promises, that's what you win them to in church life. 
And what you win them by in terms of recruiting students is what you win them to in terms of their philosophy of life. And if what you win them by is a strong stand on the word of God and the power of the gospel to save, then that is a great indication that the graduates of this great institution are going to end up in Kenya and the Philippines and hopefully in Corona. I'll take as many of you as want to come. Because there's a city there that needs Christ. We stand in a great tradition. But I just want to close, and I need to do it in a hurry. Some of you may have felt that this was rather self-serving, Dave. Uh, You're a preacher, and you came and told us how wonderful it is to be a preacher. And how everybody should be a preacher, and it's just the greatest thing. I want to close by reminding you, fourthly, of the attitude of the godly preacher as we see it in Mark 1, chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. Here was John... It says in verse 6, he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. By the way, I don't think that is prescriptive for pastors. And he was preaching. And look at his attitude. After after me, one is coming who is mightier than I and I am not fit to stoop down and untie his sandals. This was the man who in verse 9 baptized Jesus. He was the one in Matthew 11, 11 where Jesus himself said, Among those born of women, there is none greater. And yet, he knew his position, didn't he? And look closely at verse 8. I baptize you with, in, or by water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That is John's admission that his ministry, as effective and as good and as excellent as it may be, was purely external. Right? What happens if you get baptized with water? You get wet. Right? That's it. You get wet. If the Holy Spirit's ministry does not coincide with our ministry of teaching the Word, there is no eternal change. And what he is saying is, as important as I am as a herald of God's truth, My ministry is merely external. I am completely dependent on the only variable in the equation that matters, and that is God, who in His sovereignty saves sinners. So you take all that I've said this morning, and you can boil it down to this. We must be faithful. We must be excellent in our presentation. We must be fervent in our study and diligent in our holiness and our faithfulness. But when it is all melted down, the only thing that matters is whether God in his grace and his sovereignty will attend our ministry with the power of the Holy Spirit, whose job it is to apply the benefits of Christ's death to the sinner. It's a wonderful privilege to be entrusted with the message of the gospel. But when it's said and done, we are just all of us just matches in the hands of the master. And it's up to him should he choose to start a fire with it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here with you. And why don't we just stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Great God, you are a wonderful God, a a wonder-working God, marvelous in all your ways. I thank you for your blessing upon this campus, these students. Father, work in each and every one of them. Make them pure vessels for you. 
and send them out into our communities and our world. We don't know how much time we have left, Lord, but we know that your plan is right on schedule. The only question is how much a part in it we will play. Give us a large part, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.